If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Mark chapter 3. As I do most of the time. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. Um, or, or a digital device to follow along in the Scripture. I'll have most of it on the screen tonight. <clears throat> in my opinion, one of the most beautiful and, and useful and powerful animals in all of the world is the horse. The average adult horse, they say, can weigh anywhere from 850 to 2,200 pounds. They're about eight feet in length, five or six feet in height. The average horse can run up to 55 miles an hour. The strength of a horse is amazing. Some horses can pull up to three times their own weight. That's where we get the the term horsepower. To give you an idea of their strength, the maximum output of of horse a horse can put up to is 15 horsepower. The maximum output of a human is a bit more than a single horsepower. The horse's kick, they say, can be up to 200 miles per hour with about 2,000 pounds of force per square inch. That's why when I walk behind a horse, I do a really wide turn. That's a lot of power, wouldn't you agree? Yet these incredibly powerful and strong horses can sometimes be safely ridden by a small child. How is that possible? It's possible because at some point, their power and their zeal has been tempered. They call it breaking the horse. And then even after it's broken, the power of the horse is still tempered and still controlled by a bit and a bridle and reins. Here's the point. As the horse, as powerful as it is, has need of temperance, so do we. There are certain parts of all of our God-given personalities that can be powerful and useful so long as they're tempered. But if they aren't broken, if we aren't being restrained daily by the bit and the bridle of the Holy Spirit, those personality traits can become deadly. They can become offensive, even render us, I believe, ineffective for the Lord. Such was the case with the next disciple that we'll study. I told you at the beginning of the service, his name is James. Who's James? He's one of the three disciples in Jesus' closest inner circle. Who are the other two disciples in Jesus' inner circle? Peter and John. Out of these three in his inner circle, James is the least familiar to us. And that's because he never appears as a standalone character in the gospel accounts. He's always paired with his younger and better known brother, John. It's James and John, these two brothers, that Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder in Mark chapter 3. Look at at the verse 17, if you've got your Bible open there. He's given the list of of the disciples here. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And he surnamed them, uh, man, I've been working on this. Uh, Anybody have suggestions? That sounds good to me. Which is, here's the one I can pronounce, the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Not the sons of rain, not the sons of peace, not the sons of a dove, not the sons of a rainbow, 
the sons of thunder. That tips us off to what James' personality would have been like. He was fiery. He was zealous. He was passionate. He was ambitious. He was like a horse. And let me say this. That kind of personality isn't a bad thing. That's from God. There is a legitimate place in spiritual leadership for people who have thunderous personalities. Did you know that? Elijah was that kind of personality. Nehemiah was that kind of personality. John the Baptist was that kind of personality. In some ways, Peter was that kind of personality. Jesus even showed passion and zeal with a whip in the temple. So there's nothing inherently wrong with displaying zeal like thunderous Passion. I believe zeal is a virtue when it is truly zeal for righteousness sake and in a righteous manner. But sometimes zeal is less than righteous, isn't it? Like zeal without knowledge and zeal without wisdom. That can be dangerous. When our zeal outruns our wisdom, when our zeal outruns our capacity to be responsible, it's dangerous. Zeal mixed with insensitivity is not just dangerous. It's cruel. John MacArthur said this, when God-given zeal disintegrates into uncontrolled passion, it can be deadly. And he's right. Sometimes, as we'll see tonight, James, this son of thunder, he let this untempered zeal get the best of him. Two incidents in particular illustrate this that we'll study. One is the episode where James wanted to call down fire from heaven on a particular group of people who didn't treat Jesus well. The other is the time that James and John enlisted their mother's help to lobby for the highest seats in the kingdom. I want to look at both of those accounts tonight, see what we can learn about untempered zeal. Now, let me step outside of my notes and speak to you, uh, frankly, for a second, before I get to that first point. If you're thinking in your mind right now, oh, I'm so not like James. I don't need this message. Then you're more like James than you think you are. The truth is, is that we all have zealous personality traits that if not brought under the bitten bridle of the Holy Spirit will destroy our testimony. Will set back our relationships. Will hinder us from going forward even in the workplace. Will get on our kids' nerves. And will destroy their heart in some ways if we're not careful. Will hurt our marriage. We'll plunder our finances. Are you hearing me? And, and, and so everyone in here, not just the loud ones, everyone displays zeal in some area. And if that's not tempered, it is deadly. So this is for everyone in here tonight. Number one, untempered zeal leads to cruelty and impatience. Now, there's a chance I might only get through this first point. I'm going to try to get through both. Um, but I really want to take time to study Luke chapter 9 together because this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. So would you turn there, Luke chapter 9 tonight. And we're going to look at verses 51 and 53. The context is simple. Jesus was re- preparing to pass through Samaria because he was headed to Jerusalem for the final Passover. Now don't miss that statement. He's headed through Samaria because he was, he was going to Jerusalem for the final Passover. Samaria is significant here. Look at verse 51 and verse 53. Through this verse 53, I'm sorry. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. 
he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he's on his way there. And he sent messengers before his face. And they went and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now let me explain what's going on. Uh, Jesus chose to travel through Samaria. Now this is significant because even though the shortest route from Galilee to Jerusalem went right through Samaria, which is why Jesus in part was going there because he was a smart traveler, most Jews traveling between two places deliberately took a route that required them to travel many miles out of the way just so they would avoid Samaria. Like we would do that sometimes to avoid rush hour traffic, but this had nothing to do with rush hour traffic. This had to do with prejudice. This had to do with hate. The Jews hated the Samaritans because to them there were these irreconcilable racial and religious differences. In fact, the Jewish people called Samaritans dogs. They called them half-breeds. It wasn't a pretty relationship at all. The verses we read said that Jesus sent some of his messengers ahead to arrange a place to eat and sleep for the night. And the place they tried to make arrangement was this village in Samaria. But when they tried to make arrangements, they were turned down. Did you notice that in the text? Nobody had let them stay. And here's why. The Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. So when the Samaritans found out that Jesus and his group were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they were instantly turned off. And here's why. Because they were of the opinion that all such feasts should be observed on Mount Gerizim. Not in Jerusalem. If you study it, this was one of the fundamental disagreements that they couldn't reconcile. And because of it, they weren't even willing to take the Jews' money. If you're going to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, which I know Jesus is, then we won't want to pardon that because that is a fundamental disagreement in doctrine and, and we will not reconcile. So the problem in, in Samaria this day was not that there was no room for them in the end. The problem was that Samaritans were being deliberately inhospitable. If Jesus intended to pass through their city on his way to Jerusalem to worship, they were going to make it as hard as possible for him. Does that make sense? Of course, Jesus had never shown anything but goodwill toward the Samaritans. I, I started studying this. Why did they treat Jesus this way when he never treated them this way? Now think about it. He healed the Samaritan's leprosy and commended that Samaritan man for his gratefulness in Luke 17. You remember that? He, he accepted water from a Samaritan woman and in turn gave her the water of life in John chapter 4. You remember that? He stayed in that same woman's village for two days evangelizing her Samaritan neighbors. He made a Samaritan the hero of one of his best known parables. The good Samaritan. Later in Acts chapter 1, he would command his disciples to preach the gospel where? In Samaria. He had always been full of kindness and goodwill toward the Samaritans. But now they're treating him with deliberate contempt. And you know who this ticked off the most? The sons of thunder. And they had a fix for the problem. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? What was their remedy? To turn all these inhospitable Samaritans into crispy critters. 
to burn them and move on. Now, I'll give James a little bit of credit here, and here's why. He was coming by this method of revenge, honestly, because he knew his Old Testament scripture. Truly. It wasn't just his default personality. He was acquainted with the reference of Elijah. That's why he referenced Elijah. Calling down from heaven, fire from heaven, because it was, at, if you study the Old Testament, it was in this very region in which they were standing that Elijah called down fire from heaven on God's enemies. So, so it makes sense why they would default to fire as a response. God allowed it to be done before and didn't seem to rebuke Elijah for it. So why not ask for it again, right? James thought he was standing on solid ground. But just because it was the appropriate response for Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, doesn't make it the appropriate response for the disciples in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, because Jesus' mission was very different from Elijah's mission. Verse 55. But he turned, Jesus, he rebuked them. He said, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of? For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to what? Save them. Jesus said, I'm on a mission of deliverance. I'm on a mission of salvation, not judgment and condemnation. Of course, a time is coming when Christ will judge the world. You've read the book of Revelation. But right now, in this moment, this wasn't the time and place for that. Now, i got to stop here and say this. It's admirable that James got fired up when Christ was insulted. Are you hearing me? If you're traveling with Christ that day and you've given your life to follow him and you believe he is indeed the son of God and he gets treated this way and it doesn't fire you up, you've got a heart problem. He loved Jesus. I don't believe Jesus is advocating for a purely pacifist approach to every conflict. But, but the way in which James' untempered zeal led him to respond, according to Jesus, was totally out of line in this situation. And that's what untempered zeal will do. Please listen to me. It will lead us to have a spirit of impatience and cruelty with people. It will. In fact, one of the surest indicators, I believe, of whether or not we have a tempered zeal is how we, we respond when we're wronged or offended or hurt or betrayed or disappointed. See, they say that you don't really know what's on the inside of somebody until you squeeze them. Like, not physically. I mean, blood will come out. Until you apply a little pressure in their life. That's when what's on the inside will leak out. You squeeze an orange, an orange comes out. Squeeze a lemon, a lemon comes out. But you don't know until you squeeze it. Some of the most humbling times, I'm being honest with you, in my life personally, have been times when I've been squeezed by either irritating people, stressful circumstances, or disappointing outcomes. Did you hear those three? I thought of the categories of life that tend to reveal that my zeal and passion isn't tempered. Number one, irritating people. You ever met any of those? If you're not raising your hand, you probably are the irritating person. And wives, don't elbow your husbands. Brittany, stop elbowing Justin. I see that. He's a good guy, I promise. Irritating people. Stressful circumstances. You've been there? Disappointing outcomes. 
Hope deferred, Solomon says, makes the heart sick. When you had your mind and heart set on something and then your bubble was burst. And you are dis- how how do you respond? I'm talking by default. I'm not talking after you've embarrassed yourself and then you got things right with God, got your composure and then responded right. I'm talking by default in any of those three categories. If you default to impatience and a loss of composure in any kind of way, then it's a sure sign that your passion is not under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Yeah. Do you get in the flesh quickly? Do you get offended easily? Do you have a short temper? No, no, I don't have a short temper at all. Uh, don't remember, short temper doesn't mean you just power up. It can mean you power down instantly as well. Having a short temper doesn't mean you get loud. Sometimes it means you simply roll your eyes, walk away, and don't talk to the person for two weeks. Both are untempered, by the way. Okay, slamming a door and cussing. Rolling eyes and holding a grudge. Both untempered, both wicked, both of the flesh. So then I got to ask this. If calling down fire from heaven isn't the best option, which I would have thought it would be. What is? Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. You know what Jesus does? He uses common sense. How about that? And he uses grace. Look at verse 56. Here's what Jesus taught him. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And just this little detail. And they went on to another village. Amen. Reckon that. They just walked away. I imagine the conversation went something like this. James, are you serious? Jesus asked him, do you not know what spirit you're of? Dude, do you not even know how you sound right now? He probably told him to chill out, which is what you don't tell that kind of person to do. Right? Certain person is, is up here like this. And you're like, chill out. That's, don't tell them that. That's not good. But, but here's what Jesus said. Guys, take a deep breath. Not everybody's going to like us. You know what's going to be best in this situation, James? Let's just go find another place to stay. Jesus said, you know what? Some battles just aren't worth fighting. And, and that's what tempered zeal will cause you to do. It'll cause you to use good common sense. It'll cause you to use wisdom. It will cause you to default to grace. You know what, what, what tempered zeal will do? It'll cause you to leave the sword up instead of pulling the sword right away. See, that's how you know. When you're, when you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, it's hard for you to fight. When you're not under control of the Holy Spirit, your default is argue. Your default is power up. Your default is defense. Your default is to win. But you know you're under control of of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was whenever you can default to the very opposite of that and say, you know what, I'm going to figure out what will work that will not kill them and will not get us in trouble either. It's called a win-win. And when you can default with that, you know the Holy Spirit is leading your zeal. Now now, now listen, listen. You got to think. When I read that in 56, here's what I thought. Man, they got the short end of the stick. Jesus always got the short end of the stick. He always took the high road when he was God. He could snap his finger and they would fall over dead. He created their body. He knows their DNA. He could just say a word and he wins every time. He never had to lose. And on the scoreboard of life, it looks like he lost. But did he? 
I don't think he did. Because later on, grace actually paid off. See, here's what I found out. You rarely have to apologize for showing grace. And usually it actually comes back to you. Acts chapter 8, verse 5 and 8. I want you to look at this. Then Philip went down to the city of what? Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Look what happened when he did, verse 6. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Undoubtedly, listen church, many who were saved in Samaria under Philip's preaching were some of the same people whom Jesus spared when James wanted to incinerate them. Make sure before you let your zeal run loose and blow up because you think you've got to win that you stop and think of how it might affect that person's chances of coming to Jesus later on. Whereas if you'll just show grace, even when you don't have to, humanly speaking, it might come back to you later in a positive way. It may end up, you may end up getting more in the long run than you lost in the moment by showing such grace. Somebody might come to Christ because you kept your composure when they didn't. That's a powerful truth, isn't it? James' untempered zeal led to cruelty and impatience. Let me give the second point. I've got, I got time to wrap it up with this one. Untempered zeal leads to pride and selfish ambition. Matthew 19. Untempered zeal leads to pride and selfish ambition. So Jesus was talking in a room where James and John were. And he started talking about something that involved sitting on thrones of leadership one day beside him. And James perked up. He's like, ooh, I like that kind of talk. Let me show you what Jesus said. He said, verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones. Notice he didn't say who specifically. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, now, now James and John, when they heard this, you know what they did? This is pretty weak. They decided to get their mom involved. So they went to their mom, Salome, and they request that that she go and ask Jesus if they get the most prominent thrones of the twelve. The one on the right and the one on the left. Let the sons of thunder be your two vice presidents. And look at Matthew 20, 20 through 21. This tells us what happened. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee, children, Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? She saith unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand, the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now, if you're like me, you're like Salome, you need to take a chill pill. Because I've refed basketball and other sports for a long time. And she's kind of like that overzealous mom that is screaming from the stands, put my son in, coach, put my boy in. You know what I mean? It's like, go back in the car. There's a reason why your son's not in. Just leave it that way. But humanly speaking, it kind of made sense for her to ask this. Because her two boys were part of Jesus' inner circle. 
They were given special privileges by Jesus already. They had been disciples as long as anyone. They genuinely believed that they would deserve this honor. So why not ask? Well, look how Jesus replied. Verse 22. He said, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, we are able. Oh, this is so arrogant. See, Jesus had explained to them numerous times by this point that he was going to be crucified, but they clearly didn't understand that he was going to get crucified. They didn't understand what his baptism really signified. They had no idea that he was referring to being baptized in suffering and death. That's why when he asked, are you willing? They said, oh yeah, we're able. And this is what untempered zeal will do in our life. Don't miss this. It will lead us to go after opportunities or positions or relationships that in our pride we think we can handle, but God knows we can't. A position at work that we feel we deserve and we've earned. And in our minds, we think if I can just get to that spot and that position and play that leadership role, I'll be satisfied at work. But oftentimes, like James, our untempered zeal blinds us from seeing the difficulties that come with that position that God knows we're not ready to handle. We see the glitter and the power and the paycheck, but we don't see things like the pressure of performance from those above us. We don't see the things like stress from those under us who are troublemakers. We don't see the things like all the time it steals away from us because there's so much more to do now. Our untempered zeal leads us to chase after positions without looking at the negatives. We only see the positives. It happens in the area of our purchases. We have a zeal that comes upon us to buy a new house, a new vehicle, make a new investment, a new anything. And that's not a bad zeal at all. But isn't it crazy Isn't it crazy, if you're honest, how quick this zeal can sneak up on us and grow inside of us almost undetected in a matter of days as we feed it by thinking about it and fertilize it by researching it and water it by dreaming all day about it? And if that zeal for that purchase is left untempered, we're likely to let ambition steer that decision instead of wisdom and patience. And what starts as a small idea consumes our minds, overtakes our heart. And here's what happens. We become our own salesperson. And we start justifying in our minds why it's the right thing to do. Before you know it, our zeal and ambition has outran our wisdom. And we sign off on something that we'll regret. I've seen it happen in the area of relationships more times than I can even talk about. A God-given desire, and I said God-given because I believe it is, enters into a young person's heart to get married or to have a family. But soon that desire turns into zeal. And if left untempered, that zeal turns into this driving ambition, an ambition that is blinding. So that person seeks out to, to make marriage happen on their own. They put themselves out there and start biting any hook that comes their way. Before long, they're convinced they've met Mr. and Mrs. Right. Prideful ambition doesn't allow them to ask for counsel. Doesn't allow them to see the glaringly negative aspects of that person's character. It doesn't allow them to evaluate the decision through the lens of uh, of 10 years from now. All they can see is how it makes them feel in 10 minutes from now. 
So they agree to a relationship based on 10 minutes of feelings that in 10 years will leave them with more regret than delight. Have you seen this happen? Have you seen an untempered zeal in a young person's life for a relationship lead them to a wrong relationship? Have you seen it happen? Some of you have because it was you. Some of you have been there and if you could get behind a microphone tonight and speak to a single in this room or around this building, you would tell them, slow down. That's a good zeal, that's a good desire if it's from heaven. But let God temper that. Untempered zeal, listen, it will take you down roads with dead ends. That's not all. Because it has a way once you get there. If you let it go that far, of bringing friction and strife and tension into your closest relationships. Look at verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, that's the other, other 10 of the disciples, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. You see, James' untempered zeal ultimately created conflicts among the other apostles. And you know what? It really became the main debate among them all the way up to the Last Supper with Jesus. You know, it doesn't take long to think back at some relational strife that we've had in our past or even in our present and identify the cause as untempered zeal. Are you still with me? Usually social media arguments begin because somebody is zealous about something they believe in. And the zeal's a bit untempered. Something in the news fires them up. So they share a post that defends what they believe, which invites argumentation. Then comments blow up and emotions get high. And when emotions are high, wisdom is low. Zeal is untempered. And things are tight that have the potential to alienate that person and their community from ever coming to their church to hear the gospel. That's a real life story. A real life story. Relational tension over a keyboard because of untempered zeal about something your mind is made up on. And nobody can disagree with you. It, it happens in families all the time. And, and it happens a lot like when, when a parent dies. I've seen this. I've been in the room with this. Adult siblings are zealous about what they think should be done with the inheritance. And they, want, they have their own interpretation of the will. Every kid has their own interpretation. You seen this? It, it starts as soon as the funeral planning starts. They're arguing over the casket. They're arguing over who gets to read the eulogy. They're arguing over what songs to play or what songs their, their dead parent would want to be played. Then they get the bill for the funeral and they argue about who's paying for what. Then the life insurance agent calls to discuss the payout of their parents' life insurance and things get so sticky that they each have to get their own lawyer. I'm just mentioning an example, but it actually is a reality. It all began when they zealously made up their mind about something and let that opinion run free without being tempered. This happens in the workplace constantly. Two employees vouching for the same promotion 
One has been there longer, so he thinks he deserves it, but the other one is frankly a harder worker and everybody knows it and he's better at what he does, so he deserves, he believes he deserves it even though he hasn't been there as long, so awkwardness sets in and then gossip begins as the two start to misalign one another, their co-workers. Deceit sets in as the two will do whatever they have to do to knock the other off the corporate ladder and relational strife is constant because two zealous people have turned into two pridefully ambitious people and at the end, one person is gonna get the position but two people will no longer be friends. Is it really worth it? When our untempered zeal is running free in our life and we're tempted to to run after whatever it is that's in our hearts, we ought to stop and ask ourselves, is it really worth losing a relationship over? When you stop and think about how your untempered zeal might affect those that you're closest to, it might help you to pull back on the reins a little bit. Get your ambition under control. Yeah. We're doing good. James' untempered zeal led to cruelty and impatience. It led to pride and ambition, which eventually fractured his closest relationships. I want to close on a positive note, though. In Acts chapter 12, Verse 1 and 2, it answered a question I had. Did his zeal ever come under God's control? Or did he die a son of thunder? I'm curious. And so I I read the only time in Scripture where James appears without his brother. He appears alone. And it's the record of his martyrdom. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So James was the first of the apostles to be killed for their faith and allegiance for Jesus. In fact, his is the only death that is recorded or mentioned specifically in all of Scripture. So apparently his strength in the kingdom and the work of the early church was so powerful that when Herod said it's time to stop the church, James was the first man he had to kill. I'm curious though, on death row, was he still calling down fire from heaven? Because if he was calling down fire from heaven because somebody was inhospitable with Jesus, surely he's going to call down fire from heaven when someone wants to chop his head off. History records that James' testament, I'm going to read this to you, bore fruit right up until the moment of his execution. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right either. You can help me. Uh, Eusebius? Uh, Eusebius, thank you. Uh, Don't make fun of me. The early church historian, he passes on an account of James' death that comes from Clement of Alexandria. Clement says that the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was so moved that he confessed that he wants to be a Christian. They were both, therefore, he says, led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering a little bit, of course, he had to think about it. He said this, peace be with thee. And historians wrote, he kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. If this would have happened in Luke chapter 9, James' response would have been fire from heaven. He would have spat upon him. He would have cursed him. He would have said, anything I can do to put the sword to your neck, buddy. But at some point along the line, 
Here's what he learned to do, and I wrote it down. He learned to put his anger under God's control, to bridle his tongue, to redirect his zeal, to eliminate his thirst for revenge, and completely lose his selfish ambition. And he died, watch, not showing impatience or cruelty with others, but showing grace and forgiveness. Is that amazing or what? It tells me that if any of of the things that I preached by way of application with untempered zeal, the Holy Spirit targeted and and landed some conviction, put some conviction in your heart about those like he did me in my study. Here's what it means. God is big enough to transform those things in your life. Are you hearing me? Here's my concern for myself and, and for the flock that God's given me oversight. I'm concerned that there's, there's going to come a time when we stop working on ourselves. Are you hearing me? We read some book or hear some podcast somewhere that just says, be who you are. And so I get that to an extent that you ought to be the best version of you that you can be because God made you that way. But we kind of take that as license just to disregard any kind of self-awareness. Or, or, or any kind of, uh, of counsel that God sends our way to temper those parts of our personality that frankly just aren't good. And so, so anytime someone comes and challenges maybe uh, something in your personality, whether they do it right or wrong doesn't matter in the moment. If truth is truth, if they did that and God sent them your way, um, I, I, I worry that myself and my pride or, or maybe even some of you could get to the point where we just disregard all of that. And there will never be an Acts chapter 12 moment for us because we got so lifted up in pride that we, we just lost all sight of self-awareness. And, and, and we basically just made the excuse, my mom was like this or my dad was like this. I'm going to be like this. It's just who I am. So you either like it or lump it, jump it or dump it. It's just who I am. And I'm afraid that that is really not like Christ. Because even James, the son of thunder, became a son of grace. And if there are parts of your personality or your life that frankly are just untempered and your spouse is having to live with it, your kids are having to live with it, your coworkers are having to live with it, your people in your connection group are having to live with it, and you, it's just exasperating to those around you, can I just plead with you tonight for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of your testimony, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your relationships, Will you just give that zeal and passion to those, those parts of your personality that are untempered? Will you just lay those at the foot of the cross tonight? And, and, and not be so arrogant. I don't want to be so arrogant as to look in the mirror and say, well, I'm the best version of me I'm ever going to be. I don't think we ever become the best version of us that we're ever going to be. I think that there ought to be a holy discontent in every one of us. To say, you know what, like Paul, I've not apprehended I'm forgetting those things which are behind and I'm pressing forward for the prize of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are always pressing to go another step closer to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you tonight, let's, let's take some time just talk to the Lord about it. So the altars will be open. We'll have an invitation. Have a few minutes to do so. So let's respond to the message tonight. I'm going to